This is Karen Hunter, and welcome to The Hub. All right, good morning, good afternoon, wherever you are in the world. Good evening, uh, family. We are here in class with Car, episode 78. 78, we're 78. Yeah. Wow, we're really getting up there, Professor Hunter. And I was reflecting on it. We haven't missed a weekend. No, we have not. I know. We went through a whole pandemic. <laughs> so many people watching. And now the pandemic has gone through several stages. But we, thanks to everybody watching and participating, we, uh, we've been able to manage this. It's quite remarkable. I want to thank you, my friend. Not I'm just for me, you. but for everybody. We haven't missed a weekend. I look forward to it. I said to you long ago, I said, when this becomes work, when you get up and you're like, oh, I got to do this right. in class thing. I was like, we're not doing it anymore. That's so right. I can just say that publicly when it becomes a thing that neither one of us want to do anymore, which is why I think, you know, folks should appreciate, you know, the time and the energy and effort that you put in to, to do two hours or sometimes three, because sometimes we're going and doing something for narrative exclusively. Um, oh, narrative. There was no narrative either when we started, was there? No, no, that just started. In fact, there weren't, we, we, we no, were not Nubians before. Y'all know what this is, right? Y'all know what she got all right. Y'all can't get there nowhere but narrative, right? There was no narrative. No. Oh. Yeah. So are, are we building something? We're building something, huh? You and said we was going to build some pyramids. Yeah, but you know the crazy thing? Not the crazy thing. The best thing about it, and I was saying to you off mic, is that when I said, you know, you got to come with your own brick. Like bring your brick in because we bring need your brick. Folk are bringing their bricks. They're they bringing their bricks, Professor Hunter. Hands, they're like bringing bricks and then bringing other people to bring bricks. And this stuff um, that's happening in Nubia, you know, Uraeus would be like, did you see this whole group is, I'm like, what? Folk in there in their garden sharing their recipes and stuff. I was like, what? The folk expats having their conversations with building, you know. So this is not you and I, or me, or just you, or you know the team. It's the people bringing their bricks, and that to me right. is every it's everything. Because I I haven't been in a space where people have had ownership enough ownership within the space to actually feel free, and it's it's beautiful. So thank y'all. No, thank y'all. Thank you all. And and let me thank you for the thirty first of August a few days ago when you said you know what it's Fred Hampton's birthday, let's talk. And so we did that exclusively in Nubia. If you all are not Nubians, which means you're not signed up for a narrative, it is well worth the investment and it's growing. It's growing the way it needs to grow, meaning it's growing in a way that is stable and as it's built, it will endure. But that conversation we had on Fred Hampton, if y'all don't know what we're talking about, it's time to go get, get a narrative. And, that and conversation. And this, not, this is not like dangling enticements because let me just be 100%. Um, I'm I'm good with it not being a mass. <laughs> yeah, like me the too. Folk that, the folk that are here, the folk, and you know, it's been those who know know, <laughs> those who know know. And next week we're gonna you know make an official announcement because we've been just like kicking the tires and folk have been oh. trickling in, you know, because I don't know what the bandwidth can handle, even though we've been promised that it can, but you know, you don't want to be flooded. And then what's interesting, folks coming in is like, okay, where do I find my space in here and yes. I, even i was struggling but now I, like i got my rhythm I'm like every day i'm in and uraya said i don't want to be anyplace else like he sent me he was like can i just he said i have a confession to make i'm addicted to nubia i'm addicted <laughs> like, oh lord and i Ooh, said that could be read any number yeah. of ways <laughs> yeah 
But you know, I was like, yeah, if, it, if there's a cure for this, we don't want it. Let's just yes, let's just the cure it. for this. We yeah. don't. So um, I love it. Love hangover. You know, you better drop that jewel in the middle of it. <laughs> but Dr. Amon always say your vibe attracts your tribe. So it's the people that definitely so tr trading recipes from made with ingredients from the garden that people grew themselves. It really is growing, literally. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so I'm happy. Um, you know, so I'm not doing a big like, please join, 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 join. No, 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 no. Say less. You're if right. You, if you hear, if you hear it in your spirit, join. You know. Say less. No question. No question. You're gonna it's say for everybody. It's not for everybody. You no. know, especially in this space. You know, we we're doing an anti this space, meaning um. How about that? Yeah. Uh, the troll free. You know, everybody's about this life. Everybody's br bringing a brick. The expectation is it's on all of us to create the space we want to live in. And um, yeah, it, it, it's happening. So it's very so much that. liberating. It's very much liberating. So liberating, so freeing. And our conversations here are, I mean, obviously as well. And as people who are watching and commenting, and we were talking about this too before uh, we started recording. Um, looking at some of the comments from when we were talking about Emmett Till and looking at people sharing their memories as children being told by their elders and and, being, and, and in one way I think that's going to connect something we're talking about this Labor Day weekend directly because one of the comments really triggered something in me that sent me over here searching for a couple of pieces and I was like wow but the point I make is Everybody is building this. So as you all are listening to this and, you know, if something resonates with you that strikes a memory, put it in the comments because we're reading the comments and we see that none of us make history by ourselves. Kwame Ture said that the great Stoutley Carmichael, history is made by the masses of the people, but it isn't the masses of the people as one big mass. It's a bunch of individual people who make the decision to come together. And so it is extremely liberating. Let me tell you, everybody here is here because they want to be here. That's a different the, thing. The inspiration of the things you just dropped parenthetically, you may drop something, you know, a book. You got me now, as been, I'm telling you all every week, reading George Jackson. And, oh. and you know, when, he, when he's talking, I'm like, this man's in prison. How about that? We need to figure out how to get this into the prisons. You know, you, you talk about all the folk we talk about, Malcolm, you know, all the folk that have, were, were in jail that got inspired through knowledge, through the exchange of knowledge, um, to to see the world differently and to see their role in the world differently. That's what this is. So I'm like, that made me like, okay, who can I call to see if we can make, you know, because, you know, they took education out for a reason we know. But do y'all really want prisoners not to be educated? Do you? All right, we'll, we'll have that conversation later. No, man, our dream, we say this all the time, we could have the best research teams in the world if we could figure out a way because prisoners have a lot of time i'm an opportunity <laughs> no question time and opportunity said we could just get their shoe and you know some of the most some of the most keen legal minds i've ever encountered were cats who did long beds in prison because they spent that time people call people say jailhouse lawyer like that's an insult yeah i think they know the law better than a lot of these cats that get paid 
a whole lot of money to tell well, they you. Have, they have an incentive to know it because no they question. Have to buy it, you know how many lawyers? You know, well, they have a it's bunch. True. It's true. It's true. A lot more Dershowitz and others. Anyway, uh, um, I know that's right. <laughs> we leave Alan Dershowitz to uh, to Larry David. He can he can handle his friends. They, they, they want to have a beef. Uh, I'll watch though. But uh, <laughs> speaking of the law, this past week, um, the Supreme mm. Court did nothing, and Texas did something. Their legislature yeah. did something. It's, it's weird to me. Um, as I'm like reading the stories about it, and again, you you went to law school, mm. you know, to pass a law that will allow average citizens to be able to file a lawsuit. So if a taxi driver takes a woman to an abortion clinic to get an abortion, some citizen could sue the taxi driver for yeah. taking the woman, aiding and abetting her in, in an abortion. And I'm like, that's a lot of contortion to go through to set it up to take it to the Supreme Court that refused to hear it or decided go back and test some more things out before you bring it back to us to overturn Roby. There's the shenanigans in this legal system that we're under is very interesting. I just wanted to know how you felt about it before we get into the Labor Day discussion. No, I agree. I agree. In fact, uh, there's, um, first of all, I want to congratulate the Texas legislature, the white nationalists in the Texas legislature uh, the shovel mouth governor of Texas. Congratulations, Governor Abbott. Um, the beautiful thing about history is that fascists, racists, uh, hegemons, it has unintended consequences. So I encourage them to be as extreme as possible um, because you're going to finally, I hope, put this country in a position to have the real reckoning. Uh, I encourage all the white nationalists and the 30 legislatures in the United States of America who uh, that are controlled state legislatures by Republicans, which really have become the party of white nationalism uh, to intensify their efforts in Mississippi, in Louisiana, fo please follow Texas because then we can finally have this fight. Um, it'll be very interesting. Even as in New York, we saw last week that the New York state legislature and the new governor of New York in her first major act signed the legislation that extended the moratorium on evictions through the 15th of January, 2022, becoming the first state to do that. I think there are four or five other states that have uh, eviction moratoriums in place in the District of Columbia, but New York is the first in the wake of this uh, federal backwalk. Shout out again to John Roberts and the monster he has helped create on the United States Supreme Court. Uh, people are homeless. How unhoused, rather, as, as Cori Bush and others have reminded us to, and she herself having experienced that. Uh, this country is on the verge of a transformation, but not because enough people who believe in and fight for our common humanity have come together, but because the open enemies of our common humanity have decided that they are going to double, triple, quadruple down on the vision of the United States of America, at least the states they live in and control politically, they have decided to double down on their vision of those states as apartheid states. Their model isn't in the United States. Well, I guess it is if you look at the history of enslavement because minority rule has been the rule in this country. By that meaning white privileged, usually male rule. Um, but one of their models is clearly the colonial models. If you're surrounded by the natives, you try to withhold all the political and economic power to yourselves. So congratulations to the Texas State Legislature and SB8, which reads like 
something that could have been passed in Ian Smith's Rhodesia before it was Zimbabwe. You white men who have decided, and the white women who support you um, in the legislature and beyond, have decided that women should not have control over their bodies and that just like you did in enslavement with your wives and daughters and sisters, just like you did around the world in the history of Europe and its relationship to women, you've decided that you know better than a woman what to do, even after you have impregnated her. So SB8, I think, is a remarkable piece of legislation. And shout out to Samuel Alito. Um, conservative and liberal are less, uh, less, less, I think, useful in a conversation like this as labels because they give people the false impression that there's an equivalency or there are two sides. No, what we're talking about now is extremists, not even really political extremists, but religious extremists. These are like, and I won't use the word Christian any more than I would use the word Muslim. These proponents who are using Christianity as an excuse are the Christianity, what the Taliban is to Islam. In other words, you can't label the Taliban Muslim or label these people Christian without understanding that they have a fundamental political agenda that they're using the language or some of the language of those uh, faiths to promote. And this isn't a critique of Islam or critique of Christianity, this is talking about extremists. And so in Texas, uh, the SB8, which we saw the Supreme Court uh, deny the application for injunctive relief on the other day. SB8 is a well-crafted, well-thought-out extension of a political strategy that these extremists have been trying to perfect, frankly, since the early 70s, since 1973, Roe versus Wade, since Planned Parenthood. How much of this is in response to the decline in their population? You know, so you... To me, this, this is part of the like nonsense of it. You create this made up construct called whiteness, mm -hmm. which logically, and I even think about it, I was like Aryan race, master race, makes no sense logically, biologically, stupid, right? That's right. But in order to keep it up, you have to keep expanding whiteness, right? At yeah. some point yeah. it, it crumbles because folk gonna do what folk do, which is to have babies with people that don't fit into the construct, right? And oh, <laughs> guess what? Other places where the majority of the world is with melanin are having babies, you don't have the numbers. So now it's like low birth rate. We just saw the last census, which we don't talk about too much here because yeah, we don't want to trigger people because it's a made up construct to begin with. So anyway, so now you see the numbers and you have to stop your folk from having abortions, because it's really about them. They don't really care about what black and brown folk do. They, they rather sterilize us, quite frankly. No question. Which they have done to Native Americans, to black women, to Latino women in this country, uh, really uh, not too far away from now. So is this political or is it fear of losing numbers What is I think, well, I think there's that element for sure. And you know, the I want the great ironies, Professor Hunter, is that, um, you know, there's been all this talk, as we know, we see it all around us. We've had the conversation trying to help each other and, and everyone else think through this question of critical race theory. 
if you can if if you want to think about critical race theory as it's as a concept there are several basic elements to anyone who say they're really engaged in critical race theory and I'm connected to the same one of them is this concept of almost um ordinariness to use a word from Richard Delgado who's one of the key theoreticians of critical race theory at the University of Alabama and Gene Stefani they've edited some of the major anthologies in critical race theory written, been writing about it for years but ordinariness meaning critical race theory exposes the fact that the idea of whiteness is something that is maintained in a way that allows its defense its expansion to be experienced as ordinary so we don't stop to think how odd it is how oppressive it is how you know it's just it's ordinary so we see a black person beat up by the police we don't like it but the fact that we watch it and then say yeah we need to file a lawsuit critical race theorists would say see the fact that you didn't stop watching it after three seconds and say not only must the cop be fired it's time to get rid of the policing the fact that you could just sit there and then say our recourse is to go ask the very system that did this for help that means the ordinariness Ooh. of white oppression has seeped through you and you can't even imagine resistance that's how race operates so Wait, um, so, so in white women <laughs> Who are going to be forced to have babies because this is really for white women or white women or white women rich will get on a plane and come to new york city terminate the pregnancy and come back to texas see this is the problem we have and, and black and brown folk got herbs and stuff no question no question or cousins in jersey cousins in pennsylvania see this is this is go ahead go ahead go ahead yes yes i'm just you know white poor white women who fall into this line and will vote in that way literally are being forced to have babies and they're not outraged by this. Right, the ordinariness. See, this is the key. Whiteness, at the core of whiteness as it has been imagined in modern the modern world, the contemporary world, at the core of whiteness is white maleness. White maleness to subject women. Now that doesn't mean that we haven't picked up a lot of bad habits around these white people or didn't bring some of them bad habits with us when, as it relates to gender. This is very important. Again, one of the major theoreticians of critical race theory, uh, Kimberly Crenshaw, is kind of associated with the emergence of trying to deal with this question of intersectionality, race, gender, class. But, but what the point you raise is critical because not only, not only with these white women who support this legislation and the theory behind it, go ahead if they are, you know, impregnated and, and take the baby to turn. They would then turn and try to punish other women who don't want to make that choice, which is why Amy Comey Barrett in her stolen Supreme Court seat, and I encourage everyone to go research Amy Comey Barrett. I mean, it's only a step away from irony to refer to her as with the nickname like the handmaiden when you know the uh, the Catholic extremist groups that she came out of who would absolutely look at the subordination of women as their duty under God, understand that, well, that's not, she's a judge. She, she leaves that out when she comes into the, uh, the court chambers. What kind of fool believes that? But at any rate, you, you just saw how she voted. And, and all this has very much to do with the decision 
in Whole Women's Health versus Austin Reeve Jackson. Uh, that was the case that the Supreme Court uh, denied the uh, application of injunctive relief. And by the way, if y'all want a real shocker that will make you wince, Google or search on your search engine, Austin, as in Texas, as in Stephen A. Austin, Reeve, as in Christopher Reeves without the S, Jackson. Judge Austin Reeve Jackson. When you see his picture, you're going to understand perhaps why Judge Austin Reeve Jackson said, this is good law, it's good money. He's state court judge in Texas. He looked like a Ken doll, even his eyebrows are blanched. But at any rate, that's Austin Reeve Jackson, that's the defendant and others, because they did it. So Texas perfected in SB8 what they've been trying to do. They don't want women to have abortion. So they say after six weeks, you can't have an abortion. And they say, how do you determine whether you're pregnant or not? The doctor or the medical professional has to either detect a fetal heartbeat or not engage in the test that would detect a fetal heartbeat. And the six weeks begins after the woman's last menstrual period, meaning many women will not know whether they're pregnant or not. 85% of the patients who have terminated pregnancies in Texas, according to one of the dissents that was filed, and we'll talk about that in a second, uh, do that after the first six weeks. And if you understand Planned Parenthood versus Casey, Planned Parenthood of Southeast Pennsylvania versus Casey, the, uh, the case where uh, kind of set it the first trimester as the extent of the right to privacy as expressed in control of your body that would lead to terminating a pregnancy that comes in the wake of Roe versus Wade about 10 years after Roe versus Wade. You understand that, well, number one, that's arbitrary too. The idea that you set a, a, a limit on how far you can go before you can terminate a pregnancy, but that's a story for another day. We wanna talk about SB8 a little bit and what the court decided. Let's, let, let's get to that. So the court denies an application for injunctive relief. What that means is, what the uh, Whole Women's Health and others, what the, the, the opponents of this bill did was say, look, we know this is coming back to the Supreme Court. There's a Mississippi case that's working its way through. The court is, is we know it's gonna be heard. We know y'all gonna overturn Roe or try, but in this case, you need to create what John Roberts says in dissent. And yes, John Roberts was in dissent on this. It was a 5-4 decision. What was called in the law status quo ante. In other words, return the law to what it was before they passed this legislation the other night. Now, the court said no, but watch why they say no. The state of Texas came before the Supreme Court and said, we, meaning the governor of Texas, the legislature of Texas, officials in Texas, do not have the authority to enforce this law. Wait, hold on. You pass a law, yeah. The law is this, yeah. And you're saying your defense is y'all don't have the authority to enforce a law that you passed, yeah. Alito, the handmaiden, Beer, Kavanaugh, McConnell Gorsuch, and good old Clarence Thomas said, okay. So you said, I mean, you said, hold on, hold on, hold on. Wait a minute, let me get this straight. These people told you they passed a law that they don't have authority to enforce, 
And you five said that is a defense against the law they passed being not being put in, uh, uh, being allowed to go into law. Yeah. <laughs> but y'all understand what that means. Sonia Sotomayor, when you read her dissent, Sonia Sotomayor, the first thing she said is, this decision is stunning. She said, you have opted to bury your head in the sand. You have stood silently by and consented after you, you only belatedly expressed your rationale for what they first did. The first thing they did was ignore it. They weren't gonna intervene. Now, let's talk about this, what this means. Cause we know, as you said, SB8 says that any private citizen, no, all private citizens, that was the other thing they said. Well, no, it's not an individual private citizen. It's not two or three private citizens. It's all private citizens. And since they're private citizens, we don't have the authority to enforce, it's up to them. And the court bought it. Hold on. Listen, we need, we need to understand this very carefully, what is going on here. Because every time they've tried this before, in other words, the state passing a law to restrict and then deputizing individuals to do it, the Supreme Court has struck it down. They said, no, it's under state authority. You can't deputize other people to act on behalf of the state and not take the responsibility of state action. So Texas in SB8 said, let's try it this way. Instead of identifying individual citizens or a cluster of citizens, we will say all citizens. So you walking down the street, hmm, I think so-and-so trying to have an abortion. Hello? Yeah, any random ass person. And the court said, this is a procedural issue that's complex and rather than put a, uh, then hold a suspension of this law until we can decide on the merits, we will allow this law to go into effect because that procedural issue is too complex for us to resolve today. It is the, now y'all cover your children's ears because it just needs to be said. This is one of the greatest examples of bullshit <laughs> in the history of jurisprudence, not just American jurisprudence. I'm talking about African traditional law. I'm talking about Chinese law. I'm talking about any in the history of rulemaking. A court just said, was it Dr. Carl? No, I can't say. I, I just said it one time. I know these kids watching. Some of y'all won't go to law school. But this is where the beauty of it comes in, Professor Hunter. This is the beauty of it. You have pushed this system one step closer to dissolution, to dissolving. Why? Because what's really in the dock isn't just this individual law. It is the concept of law. You're not ashamed. You are purebred ideologues and you use that as your rationale for not deciding not to overturn the law. That's coming later. You'll get a chance to, to uphold the law because that's what you're after. You decided to use that BS as your cover for allowing the law to go into effect. So. What's the, um, oh, I'm sorry. One of the people, understand what the what the uh, the folks who want to overturn the law, who they sued as well. They sued this Ken Doll looking judge representing 
you know, the state. They sued the legislator. Then they sued a private citizen so they could cover that notion that you've deputized this, which you can't do legally, at least if you look at Casey, you know, you can't do, but that's all right. You know what these fools said in their order denying the application for injunctive relief, these five ideologues, they said the, in, the private citizen y'all sued testified, gave an affidavit saying he had no present intentions to enforce the law. Pause there. So Texas says anybody can do this. We've deputized the private citizens. The people against it sue one private citizen on behalf of all the rest of them deputies that the state says they can't control. And the court says, well, he gave an affidavit saying he has no present intention to, uh, to uh, enforce the law. So therefore we buy that. So wait a minute, hold on. So as soon as he gave an affidavit and you took it, he could turn around and enforce it because that's no longer the present intention when he gave the affidavit. Yeah. I mean, even John Roberts, and I, shout out to John. John. I love you, John Roberts. I love you, brother. I love you so much because you have taken a jackhammer to the lie of that law that you've sworn to uphold. And we all knew that this constitutional framework in the United States, this failed 18th century, flawed 18th century document that human beings have been trying to somehow repair and patch up over the arc of the last 200 plus years. We knew it was some BS, but Johnny John, baby, your whole philosophy drawn from the days that you suckled at your uh, consti the constitutional breast of your ideology represented in that club that y'all founded when we was both in law school called the Federalist Society. These ideologues, these constitutional Taliban, y'all have been trying to figure out how to stitch together the equivalent of an apartheid state racially in terms of class as well, because you're trying to protect the money elite. You've been trying to figure out how to do that for the last 40 years. And when you got put on the Supreme Court as the Chief Justice by George Bush, you have unfolded a line of jurisprudence that has relied heavily on the First Amendment. That's John Roberts' strategy. And we talked about this before. We won't talk about it long today. Y'all can go back and look at our conversations. We, we talked about it. John Roberts has run a lot of his ideology through the First Amendment. Not just freedom of speech, but freedom of association. Hobby Lobby. Remember the Hobby Lobby case. We're not giving out contraceptives. It's against our beliefs for our employees to have. Okay, yeah, good. Yeah, First Amendment. Boy out there in Colorado, remember the baker? I'm not baking no cakes for no gay people. Okay, that's cool. Freedom of association, First Amendment. Okay, so there's a right then in the constitution for, oh, I'm sorry, Citizens United. Corporations are people, my friend. You got the right, the First Amendment, freedom of speech, but they're not, yeah, but it extends to corporations. You can give as much money as you want. And that's what's got us in this mess partially we're in now. I see you, John Roberts. Okay, but you forgot that it's not just the 14th Amendment, equal protection. It's also the First Amendment in which a right to privacy, extending this notion of freedom was found in Roe versus Wade. A woman has the right <laughs> to privacy. Now, the critics will say there's no right to privacy in the U.S. Constitution. Okay. There ain't no right for, for uh, corporations to have freedom of speech either. But you found that in the law. And as Sotomayor says in her dissent in the Whole Woman's Health versus Jackson, 
you got almost 50 years of precedent on a woman's right to terminate a, pres uh, a pregnancy that this bill has deliberately taken aim at. And then the people who passed the bill tried to hide their hand by saying, we can't enforce the law. And you five idiots, no, I'm sorry, I shouldn't call them idiots. You five ideologues thumbed your nose at the entire structure of American law to say, that's cool. So I, 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 I ended with this. John Roberts realizing he didn't let this genie out the bottle. Y'all look at this. It's 5-4. People are saying, well, you know, it's a, they have a 6-3 majority on the court. Nah. John Roberts is a, is a uh, what they call in the law, American uh, jurisprudence, they call it, he's an institutionalist. This is what John Roberts understands. The law is only as powerful as the people who live under the law, who live within the law, grant the law legitimacy. Roberts, I believe, has begun to realize that now that you got these nuts in here, these your friends, they think that people in this country will obey the law because it's the law. John Roberts understands, no, people have a better shot of obeying the law if they believe the law is legitimate. And if you wanna know what's gonna happen now, all you gotta do is look back in history. Legally, wasn't Harriet Tubman a criminal? Wasn't Frederick Douglass a criminal? When they walked off on plantations on the Eastern shore of Maryland, they broke the law. On a judge. They, oh, right, that's exactly right. On a judge was a straight criminal. She broke the law of Virginia because she was domiciled in Pennsylvania, but she was sending her back to Mount Vernon to start the clock again. As you say, Erica Dunbar has written about that on a judge, wrote her own letters. I mean, she broke the law. The Fugitive Slave Act in the Constitution of 1787, in the Compromises of 1820, in the Fugitive Slave Act of 1850, the federal government inserted itself in state law and said, if your state is a state where slavery exists and they escape, the federal government empowers people to take them back to slavery. They broke the law. Now, John Roberts can stand there and extol the virtues of a country that has looked past and remedied these things in the past. Oh, so you suborn breaking the law then. Don't put Freddie Douglas' name in your mouth. Don't put on the judge's name in your mouth. Do not put Harriet Tubman's name in your mouth, Johnny John John, because they are criminals. <laughs> I understand. John Roberts understands that. So he jumped on the side with Breyer, Sotomayor, and Elena Kagan, but he can count. It's done now, baby. You got the five. And until Clarence Thomas goes the way that most black men of his age under that kind of stress goes, his hair done turns snow white, some fearing between diabetes and heart disease, he may have 15 minutes left. He ain't stressed. Oh, hold oh, on. No, he, no. Yeah. Well, he, yeah, but it's funny though, you watch him, he married to Jenny. He ain't stressed. That's true. He might not be. He might not be, Professor Hunter. You're absolutely right. But those of you who say elections don't matter, I'm wondering what you're saying now. But number one, just look in the past. There will be an underground railroad of women terminating pregnancies. The rich will get on their planes and fly to wherever and do what they do. They're going to have their fun. They're going to pay for it. Hell, they may terminate pregnancy in the eighth month. I mean, they, they don't care. You understand? The rules for the rich are different. They're going to do that. The poor people, as you said, poor white, poor black, poor brown, 
The question is going to become, is this going to intensify the tensions between the states? If you get on a mega bus in Texas and take the bus north to get to Illinois to terminate a pregnancy, is the state of Illinois going to put up with that? And how long is it before? Because if you look at the law, what will happen? If they overturn Wade, Roe versus Wade, they're looking at a strategy that would be like what happened with Dred Scott in 1857. It don't matter where you are in the United States. Black people have no rights <laughs> that any white person is bound to respect. Take race out, put gender in, and the overturning of Roe could unleash this beast. But what happened? All Dred Scott was, did was exacerbate what eventually became the Civil War. If y'all think that this is a victory for these white nationalists last week, you don't understand American history. They are taking us one step closer to the thing we should always understand has always been there. There's going to be a confrontation in this country. And it's going to be between those who say we want to live in a different kind of society and those who say we don't give a damn about none of y'all. So don't just read this as a woman's right to choose, which it absolutely is and must be addressed. Don't just read this as war against poor people, and that meaning black people and brown people primarily, but although it absolutely is. Read this as well as a test of federalism, as a test of the power and limits of the law, and finally, as John Roberts understands, as a test of the very legitimacy of the federal courts. Mm -hmm. That's what these five put into harm's way with their cowardly punk decision to believe this bullshit. I shouldn't say that. But that's 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 what we're facing with women's health versus Austin Reed Jackson. Let me let me ask you a governor's question. Uh, governor. Yes, yes, because that was all social structure. No question. <laughs> governor's structure. So there are a lot of folk who believe, you know, uh, the leader or the, the founder of Planned Parenthood was eugenics, which he was. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that this whole abortion thing was set up for Black people basically to not have children. Um, and it's, you know, how, how do we have that conversation? I and how does that, that play into this? Well, I think that's something that we, first of all, again, with our narrative family, I think that's one that we really need, can have a real long interactive conversation. And we have it here too, I'm just saying, but I think it's it's layered and complex, and it's not something that we can easily tease apart as, as the great John Henry Clark used to always say, in some stories, there ain't no good guys. I take that as a metaphor for some sto stories don't have clear-cut good and bad, black and white, and that story of eugenics is very clear, as, as I've been saying, and um, I mentioned it last week, but I, I've been doing a lot of reading on uh, in preparation for this semester's education in black america class on the goals of education among black people in this in the united states and, and in the world and at the turn of the century when eugenics turned of the 20th century when eugenics was a heavy conversation it was really aimed at the desire to curtail certain populations and enhance other populations with the ultimate objective of creating a better grade of people in society all sounds crazy now but not not really, not really, because there's a social dimension to eugenics as well. So while you had some white racist eugenicists who were like, these people should not be allowed to reproduce. Who? The Blacks, the Chinese, the Mexicans. They should not be allowed to reproduce. These are inferior people. And that kind of philosophy that these people are inferior 
Oh, well, you see it with Benjamin Franklin, who said, you know, why wouldn't we want to have more of the lovely whites and reds? Why would you want these swarthy people? I mean, yeah, you know, Ben Franklin, some of y'all's friend. But anyway, that philosophy that the, that the races are somehow better and worse, uh, Tom Jefferson, same way. Abe Lincoln, who, you know, I don't think black people should be slaves necessarily, but I don't think they need to live here either. So we freedom, let's get them to Haiti or Nicaragua somewhere. I mean, a lot of racism going through. But that's one category. Then you got white people who think it's benevolent. You know, because if they're allowed to reproduce, they're going to have miserable lives. They just, you know, then you have other people who are saying there's got to be a way for us to set, assess this. So, you know, we're, we're being humane. You know, the Margaret Sangers and, them, you know, supporting. This is also a, a strain that, de that develops into supports the, the uh, development of standardized testing. So we call somebody an imbecile or an idiot or a cretin. These are literally labels that correspond to numbers on standardized assessments to try to determine whether somebody has the mental capacity, intelligence quotient test, IQ test, has the mental capacity. And this and mental capacity was linked in the minds of many of these people to genetics. So the eugenicists are saying, you're just not genetically equipped, so you shouldn't be allowed to reproduce. You shouldn't let idiots reproduce. You shouldn't let cretins reproduce. And then when you lay the overlay that with the racial component, you absolutely, in fact, I was rereading some work by Kelly Miller. This is a collection of his essays called Radicals and Conservatives. And Kelly Miller was the- I didn't, he didn't know I was gonna ask him any questions. And this moron imbecile, um, moron is in there too, because I often- Moron, yes. Yeah, I often label a uh, uh, former president, you know, based on his IQ. Right. But, but people need to know those aren't just insults. They are literally labels that go on test scores. You're a moron. Wow. Moron should not be allowed to reproduce. Right. So, I mean, it's great. It's great. No, but Kelly Miller was a brother who came out of enslavement, Howard University affiliated from his young days to the time he retired and died. He was the dean of Howard University's College of Arts and Sciences at one time. Very good friends with Du Bois, Booker T. Washington. Very important person. My, my very, um, Good friend Ida Jones, who is the archivist, the lead art, the, the chief archivist at Morgan State University, one time uh, worked at Howard University uh, as uh, in, in the archives of the Morgan Spengarn Center, has written about written a book, The Heart of the Matter, in the Heart of the Matter about Kelly Miller. Miller, I was reading a speech Kelly Miller gave at this place we've talked about many times, Dunbar High School, and I was very happy to finally get my hands on the Dunbar story. It's a very hard book to get. This is uh, Mary Gibson Huntley, who worked at Dunbar for many years. This is a black woman. You know where I'm going with this. <laughs> he gave a speech there where he was encouraging the Dunbar High School students, which used to be the colored preparatory school, high school, the best high school for black children in the country. Produced all these cats, Charles Drew, Charles Hamilton, Houston, so many, Mary, uh, uh, Mary, uh, Mary White, uh, not Mary White Ovington, uh, Mary Church Terrell, who we've talked about from Memphis, was on the faculty at one time. Carter G. Woodson was on the faculty at one time. Produced these people. Kelly Miller is like, it's your duty to uplift the race. And part of your duty to uplift the race is to understand that the black elite, tiny as we are, is dying out. We're not really reproducing ourselves. So we need to understand that the race will be propelled forward by the masses of black people. But in order to prepare them, we've got to uplift the race through better education, through better training. That's a almost social eugenics version of the physical eugenics. And they came dangerously close to co-mingling by the nature of how you pick who your mate is going to be and who you reproduce with. And to understand that pathology, all we have to do is look in the mirror because that 
idea of social eugenics that you see in black communities was reproduced at Dunbar High School, at places like Howard University. And that is the origin of what we call, one of the origins of what we call the brown paper bag test. So it wasn't just whether you went to school, it wasn't just whether you accomplished academically and this is who you want to be your wife or your husband. It's also, what color is that Negro? Is this the type, you know, do you want a Karen Hunter or do you want a Mary Gibson Huntley? I mean, so in other words, if you don't know nothing else about a man or a woman, but what you see, so what you see is the, this, and this is something, this is why when you ask, can we talk about this question of eugenics? One of the reasons it's difficult for us to talk, have these conversations is because we still bear the imprint today. Who do we find attractive and why? Who do we think is intelligent and why? Who do we listen to and why? Barack Obama is part of the attraction. Hmm. Kamala Harris is part of the attraction. This is nitroglycerin to have a conversation like this because we can't have an intelligent conversation because so many other streams, the emotion, the training, the socialization is woven in. And people say, I don't believe that no more. Okay, you don't believe it. Let's follow your eyes around for one solid week of what media you consume and the choices you make and your responses. We're gonna put some diodes on you and see how your heart rate changes based on the skin color of the people you watch. And then we can come back in a week and then you can tell us whether you believe it or not. And we'll just take these observations and line it up against what you say out your mouth and see if you're arguing with yourself. <laughs> because your point is eugenics is still here with us. And the assumptions about race are part of it. So no, I mean, I don't know how we do it. But in fact, I want to mention, and I talked about, I mentioned this book before because I was reading it. This is, uh, I was reading it last week. This is uh, Chantella Sherman's book, One More Time, In Search of Purity, Popular Eugenics, and Racial Uplift Among Negroes, 1915 and 1935. That story is about Dunbar and all that. It's in here. This sister right here, a black woman, wrote her, there she is right there, wrote her dissertation on it and then self-published the book, In Search of Purity. It's not a polite conversation to have in the black community. Even you, even you with your good hair. Oh no, this is no, no, I don't know where this hair came from. No, no, we actually, see, that's funny you say that. That's funny you say that because my mother's father's, no, my mother's mother's father was Native American. In, he was Indian? Yeah, in Alabama, <laughs> right? And the reason, the only reason I bring that up is because People will be looking for a genetic reason that you look like you look, I look like I look, when in fact, the people with the bluest eyes, the blondest hair, and the whitest skin are in Africa. Why? Because genetic variation is one way you get your, your physical appearance. So it could be that nobody in either of our bloodlines was white or other than black, and we could still look like we look. But the fact that I answered that question in part by saying what my mother's grandfather was, or the fact that on my father's side in East Tennessee, that his mother's mother was uh, the product of a rape in East Tennessee by a white man. In other words, two different stories that speak to damn near everybody Black in this country. <laughs> One way or the other, the Native Americans, the whites, 
as some type of explanation for how I look or how you look would be the rationale we immediately go to because black people can't look like we look just being black. And what type of, um, what type of assumptions do we make about who you are, who I am based on how we look? That all of that coming from that field of violence called white nationalism. Now the irony is, and this is, this is interesting, I'll say one other thing, because it kind of ties to labor. The first labor union on this Labor Day weekend among black people was the Brotherhood of Sleeping Car Porters and Chambermaids. Uh, the Brotherhood of Sleeping Car Porters and Maids, because black women were on those Pullman cars too. And in fact, in terms of a, 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 a terrible disservice, betrayal really, of black women by the black men in the union. In 1937, when, this, when the Brotherhood of Sleeping Car Porters and Maids negotiated a deal with the Pullman Railroad Company, the, the deal for better wages didn't include the sisters who were working, who were paid less, who did grueling work on those trains because they had to fix white women's hair and do the chamber pots. I mean, just all that crazy stuff. They didn't include those sisters. There was one maid for every 50 Pullman porters and there were thousands, but they didn't include those sisters. And in fact, after 1937, they dropped maids from the name of the Brotherhood of Sleeping Car Porters, which is a betrayal. But many sleeping car porters and maids, but particularly the porters, were hired based on skin color. Professor Hunter, do you think the lighter skinned porters or the darker skinned porters were preferred? This is a trick question. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it absolutely is because it's almost counterintuitive. Oh, then, because I'm looking at A. Philip Randolph, who was darker than you. Jacksonville, Florida, my man. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so maybe it would make people feel more comfortable to have darker skinned porters because they are closer to the enslaved people that they want to, you know, maybe, maybe, maybe darker skin. I don't know. That is absolutely correct. George Pullman. The first Pullman car, 1867, I think it was. Interesting. George Pullman's like the railroads were expanding. Right? I mean, this is as the railroads expanded, Pullman coming out of Chicago said, you know what? Give me two of these railroad cars. Let me get these two railroad cars and I'm gonna trick them out so that the rich can ride like they live. And the thing caught on like wildfire. Very shortly, the Pullman car became associated with travel and luxury. And the rich, the Cornelius Vanderbilt's railroad baron. He's kind of Baldwin, the railroad baron, Randolph. Oh yeah, man, Pullman, Pullman, Pullman cars. George Pullman said, and since at your house, you got these N words cleaning up, we're gonna give you a traveling Negro. Mm. And, he, and his logic was exactly, you characterized it beautifully. We want Negroes that remind you of them old time because see them slave Negroes knew how to take care of you. They knew how to fix your food. They knew how to shine your shoes. And so I want Pullman porters who are dark skinned. I mean, it is incredible. There's a whole body of literature on the Pullman porters and a couple of biographies on A. Philip Randolph. This is one of the best books. I didn't pull them all. I just pulled one and represent the rest. Larry Ty's book, Rising from the Rails, Pullman porters and the making of the black middle class. The Pullman porter became the standard in Pullman, in fact, 
uh, and we talked about this before, the great little movie that was made with uh, Charles Dutton and Mario Van Peebles and uh, I think Andre Browder, Andre Browder, Chocolate Colored Man, played a random called 10,000 Black Men Named George. Because the nickname for all those brothers was George, as in George, these George Pullman boys, the Pullman Porters. I don't like what they did to the chamber, to the maids, because I remind my students that the original name is the Brotherhood of Student Car Porters and Maids. But then they, they dropped the maids after 37. A. Philip Randolph was an incredible force, but A. Philip Randolph made some serious mistakes. And A. Philip Randolph would have been outdoors. The Great Depression almost put the, the Pullman Porter Union out, they finally 1925, almost put them out of business. But in fact, uh, uh, Randolph was almost down to one suit. They used to say A. Fella Randolph wore that suit so much it started to shine like glass because <laughs> he had worn out the suit. But his wife who ran beauty parlors in Chicago was the one financing so that he had the ability to keep doing what he was doing. Then the damn feds tried to get everybody to stop going to her shops by saying she was a communist. Shout out to John Edgar Hoover, himself accused of being a Negro because of the color of his skin. And so a lot of that man's pathologies speak mm -hmm. to that, but-, but so Pausing that for a second, yes. because you know, this happens over and over and over again, you know, Booker T with Nanny Helen Burroughs and- Oh my God. You know, the, the exclusion of the women, even mm -hmm. in the voting situation, right? Uh, what's the psychology like how do you how do you reconcile if you're in a movement that is powerful like the Pullman Porters to not bring the women in to me weakens your your you need the women like you he went to his wife to spread you know to get the message out through her beauty parlors without her there's no Pullman Porter in my opinion no no right. powerful union so Right. What's the logic? How how does that manifest? Because we're we're dealing with shades of that even now. You know, they're they're folk doing stuff. Um, it's just it's just interesting to me, and I, I feel like it's not just counterproductive. It's like stupid. Well, it's more than shades. It's more than shades. Um, I think what we have to do if we're talking like it was today whether it be the abortion case and now we're kind of moving into the field and the conversation around labor which is entirely appropriate on labor day weekend whatever category we're dealing with when we apply our africana studies framework we understand that a lot of our conversation is drawn from us trying to figure out how to just navigate and negotiate living in this field of violence so it's a social structure conversation we rarely take opportunity that we've been doing now for 78 weeks. And now in the world of narratives being built as we continue this conversation, we rarely take the opportunity to really grant, begin our conversation in that second category, the governance structure category, who are we to each other? And that's not a category that was designed to ask questions that yielded victories all the time. It's a, it's, a, it's a category designed for us to have honest conversations about exactly these topics in ways that will help advance us, or as, as you always remind us and as we remind each other, uh, as uh, Sister Sonia Sanchez said, yeah, but how do we free us? That's what that governance structure category is really about. And when we start talking about categories like class or gender or race, there's a governance structure conversation we have to have that can't be uh, co-mingle with the social structure category, which is why we want to reduce it to that music, reduce it to the background, turn it down so we can talk like this. So that having been said is background. Why? 
I think is complex. Prior to the uh, prior to enslavement, our societies had very clear roles, but those roles weren't always attached to your biology. Sometimes the role was determined by how old you were or weren't. When we talked about Hampate Ba last week and the question of those sevens, and we talked about that in, in, in Nubia. Sometimes the role was attached to biology. So there were roles that were expected of the females, roles expected of the males. And I'm using female and male instead of women and men because women and men is more of a gender category in the sense of socialization. You know, just because you're female doesn't make you a girl or a woman if girl or woman is attached to a certain set of social identities and cultural identities and expectations. You become those things. So a female stays a female from birth to death. A girl becomes a woman as a result of coming into a society and learning these roles and expectations. And so it isn't just even a matter of age. That haven't been said. There are the full range of human experiences in Africa, but then you bring all those people into a field of violence where they have been reduced to property. And once you do that, they are obsessed with survival, with resistance. And part of survival and resistance can look like attempting to gauge the social structure you're in and figure out what part of that you can cannibalize, steal from, adapt, disguise yourself under in order to advance the possibility of your liberation. And part of the thing you pick up is the way that gender operates in Western societies. Women are absolutely not respected. They were respected in Africa. People say, well, that's too broad a statement. You're absolutely right, it was too broad a statement. Women and men had different networks of social relationships in those African societies than they did in the European societies. So let's not even put a valuation on it. Good, bad, better, worse. No, different for sure. Now you bring all that into this field of violence. Now all of y'all are property and you're trying to figure out how to either, how to maintain part of what you brought with you as a form of resistance, as a form of recreating your governance structures. At the same time, you're picking up bad habits from these people because you ain't gonna find no Cinderella stories in Africa. You're not gonna find Snow White in Africa. You're not gonna find these reduced women to labor. No, hell no. In the African stories, you're seeing societies where women have their own conversations, women have their own responsibilities, women have their own networks, men have their own societies, their own networks. They come together for decision-making. They come to men. Are they perfect? Of course they aren't perfect. They're human. So some of these men are crazy. Some of these women are crazy. Some of these, so the question is, how did these, these formations they created resolve conflicts? How do they deal? And you, but, but we can't even get to that question because they all got thrown into slavery. So now it's all commingled. And what you will find is the relationships between women and men when the Africans are by themselves during enslavement and then their children and their children and their children. And next thing you know, you're eight generations in and nobody remembers Africa, but some of the behavior finds itself there. You find the senior woman in this plantation formation, big mama, as we might call her, has an authority that is the ultimate authority, even with the men around. We all get around, our big mama said, okay, we ain't gonna do that then. Okay, the house they just came from that woman who's the same age as big mama, the black woman, she ain't got no authority in her household. So what's she gonna do? She gonna offshore all her frustration on that black woman. All this craziness is going on at the same time. And then the civil war comes and they free. So class, now you got these Negroes <laughs> who want to be free, but they looking at the master said, I'd like a house like that. Okay. 
And in this society, we're all in words, but I'm a man. So therefore, my manness, my maleness will allow me to approximate, become a blackface version of this white person. And I'll turn to the woman and say, you stay at home. You have the children. But, but in that society, that kind of thing is relegated to, that's not work. In the societies we brought here with us, those things were valued differently, but that's long gone. Because now you're a black version of, but the deeper down you go in the class structure, while that still will be the sensibility, these women not doing that. Yeah, we all working together. I'm in the field picking cotton with you, uh, uh, Luke. So damn it. Oh, oh, oh you gonna raise your hand. All right, well, we're gonna be out here and if you. So this, <laughs> all, all of the, look, creative people, we go now to the cultural meaning making category. Creatives, please understand. The stories of our people, yet to be made because we don't even know enough we we didn't interview enough of the elders so y'all think y'all making a movie this is a groundbreaking you ain't even asked nobody what it was and you just inherited the idea imagine this imagine the notion of powerless black women if you went if you transported yourself back to a plantation and started talking about powerless black women they will all laugh at you not just the women but the men yeah yeah i remember when lamb tried to raise his hand to, to nancy she beat the shot out of him, and then we kept, kept peeking cotton. <laughs> Man, no, in other words, I'm just saying, because the farther down you go in the class structure, the more you're going to have the echo of Africa that has been blended, reblended, blended, reblended, transported, blended, so that it is a new thing with an old echo in it. And overlaid over the top of that is the notion that I don't even know if I, you got cats. And then and then what do you do? I'm sorry, I, I, I'm jumping around a little bit. Let me, let me, let me, let me pause this. I'm jumping around in terms of history. But if you go back to the 1820s and 30s, when, the, when they stopped the boats from coming, except illegally, and they explode the domestic slave trade, you inject another piece of poison in. Because you don't get more workers now from the boats. You get more workers from breeding. So now you've injected this whole notion of hyper-masculinity that is strictly breeding. One dude got five women on this plantation pregnant because they forced him into the barn. What does that do to the cultural logic of relationships? You understand what I'm saying? So even now, when we, we I see, I hear these scholars talking out the side of their neck with no background. I'm talking about black ones. I'm talking about, I don't even, the white scholars, I'm just like, whatever. But the black ones, how y'all talking about this? And you don't even factor in decades, then centuries of deep pathology. And in the United States of America, after the 1820s and 30s, you inject this poisonous domestic slave trade breeding dimension in, and then we come out of that. It is a wonder, all black people in America, not insane. <laughs> the, well, one, the fact that we are able one to- argue, One could argue that we are. I only brought it up because I need us to stop um, being blackface versions of whiteness. I need us to stop that. I need that's us what we're working remember, on. Here. You know, so that's why I brought it up because I, I, I knew you knew. I, I, knew well, that you, I, I knew that you would know how to um, have this conversation because I feel like, you know, so many times we do things and it's just, you know, knee jerk, but we don't think about why. Why we do we treat each other this way? Why do we act this way? Is it is it natural to us to, you know, or have we been conditioned and trained? So I'm, I'm glad you brought up, I never thought about the Pullman Porters being dark skinned until you mentioned it, so thank Well, you answered the question, you knew it. No, but yeah, but I never thought about it. 
And so uh, until you brought it up, I was like, of course. And then what course. does that mean? And then what does yep. that mean? You know, and then, yep. then you're going to exclude the women. What does that mean? And where did right. that come from? So it's like everything leads to us having to question everything about how we interact and how we be. And I said it just like that. How we That's be. right. Who, who we be, how we be. Well, let's let's take a couple of minutes since it is Labor Day weekend and tie that very conversation yes. to Labor Day. We know, both of you know, the Labor Day weekend, the Labor Day holiday, which is what, the first Monday, I guess, in September um, 18, I think Grover Cleveland was president, 1894, I think it became a holiday, um, a federal holiday. But here's the irony of the Labor Day holiday. This holiday started as labor fighting back because this is the days when white people were working 12 hours a day seven days a week children were laboring in the mines <laughs> you know you have it and they tried to push back because you start now we're talking about after the civil war we're really talking about the 1860s 70s 80s uh industrialization is beginning to take hold the moving from an agricultural society eventually to an industrial society so labor is serious 1886 in Chicago, the famous Haymarket riot, where workers were killed, police were killed. Um, you see uh, the in September, September the 5th, uh, 1882 in New York City. All you New Yorkers, all y'all people in Manhattan, you know where Union Square is. Union Square, 10,000 people show up in a, in a strike, in a protest to demand labor and the, stats, the, stats, the, the state passed labor laws. Well, they began to designate Labor Day as a day when workers come together. And here's the irony of Labor Day. A day started to recognize labor, and it's not the only one. A lot of people will talk about May Day. Maybe we'll talk about that next May. We'll get into the history of May Day. The international workers showing this. Uh, the irony is a, a holiday started for by labor has become a day that is celebrated by the owners. We celebrate labor. No, you don't. You took that holiday and turned it to the exact opposite. So all the rest of the year that y'all are working for us for lower wages than we should pay you, kept, give it to us because we got a Labor Day sale. It's like, wait, wait, wait. No, I work for you. No. See, so, let, so we know the holiday, but let, let's set aside the holiday and the social structure to deal with this question of governance structure. So you know me, I'm looking up, go to the Oxford English Dictionary, talking about origins. Labor is a word that comes from the old French. And the old, cause you know, like a lot of English words, they're really French words because the French occupied, well, the Gauls occupied the Eng England. So a lot of those words we call English are really French labor being one of them. Labor is from the old French. Um, and then that goes back to the Latin for not only work, but toil and also distress or trouble. Their breath was labored, distress. You know, it's the trouble, right? And so the Oxford English Dictionary, I like the Oxford English Dictionary because it has the etymologies, right? They talk about the exertion. Labor means to exert the faculties of the body or mind, especially when compelled. So in other words, labor has become a word that is associated with doing something you don't want to do, but you got to do it. I got to go to the job. I got to go work. I got to go. It's modern uses like that. Physical exertion directed to the supply of material wants of the community. Okay, that's a little closer, but I only started with the social structure definition because I wanted to go to the Africans. So, you know, I would usually start with the Egyptians. So the ancient Egyptian word for labor, 
I got a couple of dictionaries, you know what I'm saying? But uh, here's a concise dictionary from Middle Egyptian. This, when you learn hieroglyphs, Dr. Beatty teaches hieroglyphs, he often uses this. This is the one he learned on that I learned on. And also Sir Alan Gardner, Egyptian grammar. This is the one I learned on. He doesn't use Egyptian grammar anymore, but Dr. Obenga taught us both on the Egyptian grammar. This is the one that we, uh, this is Martin Bernal's granddaddy uh, who did Black Athena. But at any rate, chat is the word there. And it made me think about the idea Ket in ancient Egyptian language speaks to this concept of work, but work as an occupation, as a craft. So in other words, labor at its heart in ancient Egyptian, and then you look at the Yoruba, so you know, I'm asking my Yoruba friends, and his, this is one of the great Yoruba dictionaries. I like this Yoruba dictionary. This is uh, um, Kayode fucking uh, Lede's book on Yoruba, if you can see here get it here yeah modern dictionary Yoruba. i'm looking at definitions of labor and and blending that with what i know about work in different african societies work is often connected to what you do for the community same as in these other societies but you see specialization blacksmiths for example it's very interesting that nat turner's son that we talked about gilbert turner when miss uh miss lucy may turner said my daddy was good with iron work he was like a blacksmith I smile because blacksmithing in West Africa is a, is a vocation, but it isn't just about making iron. Often the blacksmiths, when you read uh, books like the Mende Blacksmiths, so you read Robert Ferris Thompson's work, uh, they had a book called Striking Iron. They had a big exhibit at the Museum of African Art that talks about this. If you were an iron worker, you were often also a priest because iron, when it's molten, is a metaphor in many of those societies for blood. So we know the function of blood. In other words, iron is like blood. So you don't just work with iron because you're good with iron. You work with iron because you have been spiritually brought in the rites of passage into this craft. And part of your work as an iron worker is connected. Many roles in society. So labor, you have this kind of thing, but here's where the things collide, right? You see during enslavement, Africans are brought here for their labor. This is why the genius of, a uh, again, can never say that, uh, that this book can never state this book enough. It's very important. Um, the great Black Reconstruction in America, of course. We see Du Bois, Dr. Du Bois, Black Reconstruction in America. Uh, this is the Oxford Oxford uh, uh, edition, which uh, I didn't I didn't go get. I have the Du Bois one, the original, but I just get the table of contents here. Dr. Du Bois starts chapter one, the Black Worker. The framework of this book, published in 1935, is still the best. Let me pair that with another one I would encourage people to get. This is more recent. This came out a couple of years ago by the great uh, Dr. Joe Trotter. Joe Trotter at Carnegie Mellon, good brother, who wrote this book, Workers on Arrival, Black Labor and the Making of America, Joe William Trotter. This is important because when you put this book with this book, I like this framework better. This book is very up to date, including a great bibliographic essay to tell you history of Black labor in America, in the U.S. But what Du Bois notes is, you brought people here not to be human, but to work. And so the meaning of black life in the American social structure is labor. But I don't mean labor for the community that black people were trying to build. I mean, whatever you were trying to build. So we become slaves, later Pullman porters, 
Later, Amazon drivers. <laughs> Later, in other words, essential personnel. Think about the context of black labor in the context of, we don't care about your humanity. Why? We're capitalists. We don't care about white people's humanity. We don't care about immigrants' humanity. We damn sure don't care about your humanity. You are labor. So when they say Labor Day, we celebrate labor. Labor is a title. Label is a la labor is a label. Label isn't our labor isn't our humanity. Labor is not your life unless you come from a society where what you do is connected, which is what reminds me again to the ancient Egyptian uh, word mer, M-R. We pronounced it with like mer because we put an E in because we don't know where their vowels were. The glyphs for the word mer, the glyph, the, the, the drawing of the word mer, I'm doing like this because you see a backhoe. Like uh, it's like a little, little V with a little line through. It's a backhoe. You use it to break up the ground. The word for love in ancient Egyptian, the symbol for it is a tool of labor. In other words, you devote your effort to the thing that you love. If you love your family, you love your community. And you see that in human existence. At the same time that capital is not quote unquote paying people their worth, you can never pay people their worth. Why? Their worth isn't attached to a material number. However, in a capitalist society, you should pay them more since you do count value by number because you have suppressed them and now they're doing things they wouldn't do. They're working for you because that's what you need them to do. So we come to a conclusion by saying that this American apartheid system created both parallel labor stratification and a sense of shared obligation and community. What do I mean? After enslavement, you see apartheid, say black community, white community. In the black community, you start seeing a labor stratification that looks like the white community, black doctors, black lawyers, black teachers, and then you go down black laboring class, maybe the Pullman porters become that, right, among others, and, and maids. Then below that, you got the people who are unskilled labor. And so now it looks like the white thing. But the difference is within that black community, that's, that governance structure, apartheid is keeping them together. So apartheid keeps them together. So black labor is all moving to try to smash Jim Crow. They gotta, uh, they gotta destroy the oppression, segregation, humiliation. You know, this question of can we have opportunity? But once apartheid is over, once Jim Crow is over, once those laws change, particularly with the highlight of the 1960s federal legislation, we have not resolved the challenge of remaking the society we want to be in. In fact, it's hardly even mentioned. We don't have a critique of capitalism. But what do we do? We reinforce the white values. Go to school, make more money, take care of your family. What about the rest of us? Yeah, we don't like police brutality. We don't like nothing like that. And we should move together, but you just got to work hard. Hold on, hold on. We haven't even had an intelligence conversation. So when we think about that generation that smashed Jim Crow, labor was at the center of it. And so it's funny because knowing this Labor Day weekend, I, I pulled this to reread. In fact, let me just, let me end with this. Let me see. Let me see. Where did I do with Larry Ty's book? Oh man, here it is. Rising from the Rails, The Pullman Porter. This is, I love the way he opens this book. Ty says this, the most influential black man in America for the hundred years following the Civil War was a figure no one knew. He was not the educated W.B. Du Bois. He was not uh, Book, uh, uh, Booker T. Washington, although both were inspired by him. He was not the one black man to appear in more movies than Harry Belafonte or Sidney Poitier. He discovered the North Pole alongside Admiral Perry and helped give birth to the blues. 
he launched the Montgomery bus boycott that sparked the civil rights movement and tapped Martin Luther King to lead both. The most influential black man in America was the Pullman Porter. In that one paragraph, Matthew Henson worked the railroad. Elijah McCoy mm. on the railroad figured out an invention that allowed for the free circulation of oil to keep the engine running. And it was so brilliant that Elijah McCoy, prefiguring the Pullman Porter on the railroad, the one they call it, they, they, they then realized this guy is so brilliant that as, as inventions came up that he made and didn't patent, they had to figure out, is this yours or is it the real McCoy? That's where the real McCoy came from, the Pullman line. Malcolm X, Red Fox, oh my God. Benjamin Mays worked as a Pullman porter <laughs> before he came to press. What Larry Todd documents, he goes through, this book came out in, I think, 2004. When he decided to write this book, he realized most of these guys got to be gone. He put ads in newspapers. He put in the black press. He went all over the country. He went and talked to people. He, he met up with different people around the country. And eventually he's able to interview 40, over 40 Pullman porters. He said the youngest of them were in their 80s. The oldest ones were over 100 years old. And I took the stories of the Pullman Porter. C.L. Dellums, we talked about C.L. Dellums out there in Oakland, who was a uh, Pullman Porter. He became the president of the Brothers of Car Porters after A. Philip Randolph, 1968. But I want to, I, I read that as the first part of ending. The second part is I just pulled one of the most important Pullman Porters to make this point. This is Edgar Daniel Nixon Sr. Ain't been a whole lot written about him. This is my old Tennessee State classmate, April Woodson wrote a book called Freedom is Never Free, a biographical portrait of Edgar Daniel Nixon. Edgar Daniel Nixon. We know Edgar Daniel Nixon as E.D. Nixon, the Pullman Porter who heard A. Philip Randolph, in fact, 1928. A. Philip Randolph started Brotherhood of Sleeping Car Porters in 1925, gave a talk at the Elks Lodge in New York. This is what E.D. Nixon said. E.D. Nixon was from Montgomery, Alabama. I should tell y'all who this is. He said, most important part of my education came in 1928 in St. Louis when I met A. Philip Randolph. See, I was on the St. Louis to Jacksonville run. Oh, by the way, the Pullman Porters is the reason Black people had the Chicago Defender in the South. Because they would get the paper in Chicago and take it and throw it out of the train in the middle of the night into the fields in Mississippi and Louisiana. Uh, in fact, the train that Emmett Till took down and that, his, that he came back on in terms of his body they call that one um, the uh, city of New Orleans. Some of y'all heard that, some of y'all old school. Y'all in the chat, I hope y'all adding Pullman Porter stories because my granddaddy was offered a job in the, in, in the railroads in Connecticut. He says too cold, so he stayed in Alabama. Thank God he did. <laughs> the railroad, this is the story, but y'all got these stories. So y'all put these in the comments because when I said read these comments, we see the other stories Larry Ty probably didn't get. But when his body came back, came back on the city of New Orleans. Who's working those trains? The Pullman Porters, the, the maids. In other words, Emmett Till had an honor guard coming back to Chicago, mm -hmm. but it's invisible to the social structure. Ain't nobody gonna let nothing happen to it. And if they caught you with the Chicago Defender, they would have to hide it in the floorboards or stash it in the back because they, the, the company didn't want them doing that. The great migration was triggered by the Pullman porters. 
because when they didn't have that uniform on, it was somebody. So E.D. Nixon was on the uh, the St. Louis to Jacksonville run. Well, when we would get to a city like St. Louis, the company always had a place for porters to sleep. He goes on. He says, we heard about it. He said, I'm going to start a chapter. What does he do? E.D. Nixon starts a chapter of the Brotherhood Sleeping Car Porters in Montgomery. He also starts in 1928, the chapter in Montgomery of the NAACP. Y'all see where we're going with this. It was Edgar Daniel Nixon. Let me show you a little picture of him here. Because Eleanor Roosevelt, he, he, she was friends with him. There's E.D. Nixon as a younger man. Here's E.D. Nixon with the NAACP Youth Council. E.D. Nixon, right here, E.D. Nixon recruited a lady in her early 40s to be the secretary for the NAACP Youth Council. She and her husband lived in Montgomery. Uh, his, his, her, her husband's name was Raymond. Her name was Rosa Parks. Edgar Daniel Nixon used his organizing skills to strike blows against segregation in Montgomery for decades, along with this brother right here. This is Vernon Johns. <laughs> Y'all see where we're going about. There's not been a lot written about Vernon Johns. His niece, of course, who led the strike, the walkout in Prince Edward County, Virginia, uh, Vernon Johns here. This is an interesting book on Vernon Johns. Vernon Johns was deposed as the pastor at Dexter Street, Dexter Avenue Baptist Church in Montgomery. The young brother they brought in uh, became the pastor, but the man who more than any other single individual, by the way, he traveled all over here, he is with Percy Sutton, <laughs> E.D. Nixon over there with Percy Sutton. The man who recruited this young, uh, who recruited this young brother into what becomes the Montgomery Improvement Association helps develop, E.D. Nixon is the one that tapped Martin Luther King more than anybody else. But it, but as Dr. King said, and at the 25th anniversary of the Montgomery bus boycott in 1980, the Montgomery Proof Association invited E.D. Nixon, will you come speak? Nixon declined. He said, y'all haven't asked me to do anything. Y'all haven't asked. And he, by the end of his life, he was very hurt because Nixon was like, we were fighting for this for years and organized labor was at the center. Organized black labor was at the center. Dr. King would never have been able to do what he did. And some people like Fred Gray, who's still alive, King's lawyer, Browder versus Gale, we talked about that one, um, said, y'all got whole highways named for Martin Luther King and there's nothing in Montgomery, not even a street corner named for Edgar Daniel Nixon. But Edie Nixon represented the organized labor and the Pullman Porters and organized that, that question of how our people made history as Kwame Ture used to say this, if you put Martin Luther King in Montgomery, if you put him in Birmingham, if you put him in Selma by himself, he will be killed. It is history's made by the masses of the people. So on this Labor Day weekend, take the opportunity to ask even the people in your family, to ask yourself and our communities, what kind of jobs did y'all do that you did because you had to do them for the family? What kind of work do you do because the work you love? And what role did you help play that nobody ever asked you about in this struggle that we've had against this social structure? This is really just, Black people should take Labor Day as a weekend where we give thanks to those who labor for us in ways that we couldn't imagine having to do, including the people in your family and mine. But, but I, I like that E.D. Nixon story because E.D. Nixon is the story to Pullman Porters.
even though they shouldn't have done it to the sisters. But anyway, that's <laughs> I mean, but what's so beautiful about the space that we're in right now, what we're doing and what we're building is that we're remember remembering and making sure yes, yes. that these stories get told and that they don't get forgotten and that we do put the pieces together so that we can tell full, complete stories to the next generation. Nobody should have half a piece of story or some distorted version of what happened when we all are here with memory and the ability to ask people in our family the questions that you're challenging us to do. And, and the more we grow in narrative, the more there's gonna be space for us to share our own narratives, our stories, our genealogy, the stories of our family history, because if we don't put it together and if we don't do that work, um, we, you know, we can be victimized by a system that uh, absolutely wants us to know nothing about anything other than to get to work in word, get to that's work. Right. That's right. But, that's that. That's exactly right. Because if we don't, you're absolutely right. I mean, and it's and it's complex. Vernon Jordan, mm -hmm. Vernon Jordan, Edie Nixon asked Vernon Jordan to come down and speak for on his behalf. They had doing a tribute. Vernon Jordan said, "I got a call from two lawyers, two black lawyers in Montgomery." saying, don't come down here. We heard you coming to speak for Edie Nixon. Edie Nixon's an Uncle Tom. Edie Nixon had endorsed George Wallace for governor twice, the two times he won. Because remember, Wallace had the whole confession. I've been made a mistake. Edie Nixon said, Wallace is in the best position in this current environment to help us as a community do so. Because ain't no black person going to win. The younger generation took that to mean Nixon was Uncle Tom. Vernon Jordan told those two lawyers, he said, I'm coming. And I'll tell you why. Because what because Edie Nixon did what he did, y'all have the ability to be lawyers in Alabama to call me with this. We have to tell these stories. Karen. Otherwise, what the social structure does is pick out little pieces and make it part of a story that has nothing to do with the internal conversations, the debates. There hasn't been an Edie Nixon movie. Maybe that's the one we should make. There hasn't been a good Edie Nixon uh, um, documentary. That may be one narrative. We'll add that to the list. Yeah, I gotta write it down. Yeah, because he 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 made transition. I think in 1987. Um, he lived to fairly recently. But if you've never heard the name Edie Nixon, or if you just heard, oh, Edie Nixon, he was in. In fact, have you seen? Uh, you probably know the brother Clark Johnson. Uh, he was in uh, The Wire. He played like the editor at the news desk in Baltimore for the Sun, and he's a director writer. One of the best movies, in fact, when we go to the New York African Burial Ground, we ride up on the bus, I usually bring this copy of my uh, DVD and I play it. I love the, the uh, HBO, uh, they showed it, uh, but Clark Johnson put it together. Uh, Boycott, have you ever seen that? No, I haven't. Boy, Boycott is such a, oh, I love that movie. Boycott is based on a documentary, a compilation of documentary, documents on the Montgomery Bus Boycott. I think it's called Dawn of Freedom. I had a book over here somewhere. But what Clark Johnson, his crew does, it's the one where Jeffrey Wright plays Martin Luther King. And uh, he met, in fact, what's the sister's name? She plays Coretta, but they met on that scene, on that set. And he was like, I was trying to impress her. They end up getting married. She played Coretta in Selma too. What's her name? Um, Tessa, no, it's not Tessa Time. Hold on, hold on. Carmen oh, Jogo. Carmen Jogo. Yeah, I was going to say, isn't she British? Yeah, Carmen. Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. Yes, yes, yes. Because she was in um, True Detective. What our man, yeah, Carmen DeJogo plays uh, uh, Coretta and Jeffrey Wright plays Martin Luther King. Edie Nixon is played by Reg E. Gaines. 
I mean, not not Reggie Gaines. Is that his name? Reggie Gaines, the brother who kind of talked like this. Uh, yeah, who, who who passed away recently? He made transition. That's exactly right. Oh my God, he nails Edie Nixon. So if you ever see Edie Nixon, they kind of got the same kind of bearing. You know what I'm saying? So they set fire to Edie Nixon's uh, uh, the tool shed outside his house. So he's out there. I want to hurt somebody, Martin. I want to hurt somebody. And it's like, but it's like you can see Edie Nixon was not. E. Nixon was a hardcore dude. If y'all ever get a chance to see the HBC, HBO docu-pick, um, Bayard Rustin is in there, uh, Fred Gray, Eric, the sister who plays Rosa Parks. It is an incredible ensemble cast. And because it's based on the documents, you get a much richer kind of sense. This is, In fact, uh, Terrence Howard plays Fred Shuttlesworth. They sitting in the back of the meeting <laughs> at King's Church, because Fred Shuttlesworth is like uh, uh, Terrence, you know Terrence Howard with that kind of slosty, uh brother, you gonna shut this down? <laughs> and Jeffrey Wright is like, uh, I'd like to leave the meeting, but uh, I can't, it's my church. And they up there arguing about who gonna be the leader. And, and Edie Nixon is sitting up there like, well, uh, based on my years. And they try, well, I have the biggest church. And then so somebody says, uh, we need somebody who, and Terrence Howard playing Fred Shuttlesworth sitting in the back and said, no, no, I nominate no. Martin Luther King. Terrence <laughs> Howard plays Ralph Abernathy. Oh, I'm Ray sorry, not Fred Shuttlesworth. Ralph Abernathy, yes. And yes. Ray E. Kathy, uh, Kathy plays Edie Nixon. And he was also in, what was that uh, thing with Kevin Spacey um, uh, on Netflix? It was set in D.C. Yeah, uh, he played the rib shot, House of Cards. House of Cards. Uh, Re Reggie Cathy. Reggie, Reggie Gaines Cathy. is a poet. Yeah. That's right, Reggie Cathy. Yes. Oh, you see it. You see it I'm there. Look it up. It's CCH. Yes. Now I got to go watch it. Look at that cat. Listen, I, look, y'all. I, I ain't trying to sell y'all on no commercial thing. But the thing I love about it is, like, when they first start boycotting, they play as they start walking. You hear um, Dizzy Gillespie's Swing Low, Sweet Cadillac. And he's and Dizzy Gillespie starts swing low, sweet Cadillac with this kind of Yoruba call. Everybody, body, 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 yeah, echo wah, yeah, echo wah. Then you hear ba -doo -doo, ba -doo -doo, and they start walking, and you hear the piano come in, and he swing low, sweet cat, and they enter, they intersperse it with documentary footage. So you see, you see these little children, like these little girls sitting on step, and she's learned how she just learned how to read. So she's like, young children. Stay off the bus in Montgomery. And then she looks at the camera and smiles. It's like, you see all these, it's like, man, this is an incredible, incredible moment. And then of course, when they go through the boycott, I mean, you cannot, y'all gotta watch it. Cause the music is Kurt Franklin. It rains one day. So they all try to get it. And then you hear, you want a revolution? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they all pulling cars out the mud. I mean, it is a brilliant, ensemble cast great music great acting boycott and you'll see e nixon and boycott yeah okay. and and for all of the folk who work um be like the pullman porters and make sure that the places that you work uh that you're doing more for the culture doing more for our community uh while you're there making a little bit of a difference not everybody's in a position to do that but we no. could all do a little something to make the pathway a little easier for some mm -hmm. folk there or maybe be a mentor, but let's not just go to work to make a paycheck because there's enough people doing that. No, we've sacrificed enough on that front. Yeah. And, and thank I, you, Professor Hunter, for your labor. Because they say labor of love, but we understand 
that mer means labor in that sense in love. So I love you. We I all love you. And thank you for working to make this possible. And I love us. So I love us. You know, that makes it easy. Uh, we'll see y'all next week live. Uh be September 11th. So uh we have uh, I want to reframe what that day means. Yeah, we'll think about it. We'll do it next week. I know you're gonna have something for us. You just gave you just gave the field notes. Now we gotta get it. September 11th. Okay, y'all look up Salvador Allende. We'll start with Allende because September 11th means something different in Chile than it does in the U.S. But we'll start with that. All right. Can't wait. <laughs> Thank you, brother. Love you. <laughs>